Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. Hey everyone, this is Dana Schwartz. Happy 2023. Just a few quick pieces of housekeeping before we dive into this week's episode. There are still a few spots available on the tour I'm co-leading to Cornwall next summer. It's a tour uh, focused on Daphne du Maurier and the book Rebecca, which is one of my all-time favorites. And we're going to be staying at this gorgeous house in Cornwall and just spending a few days talking about the book and reading and walking and writing. I did one of these trips last year about Frankenstein, and it was just such a phenomenal experience to, like, get a break from technology and work and, you know, in touch with my creativity and what I love about talking about books with people. It's just such a phenomenal opportunity. I immediately begged them to let me do another, and so that's how the Rebecca pilgrimage came along. So if it's something you're interested in, the program is called Common Ground. I'll put a link in the bio, but it's just phenomenal. And I think if you listen to the show, you'll get a lot out of the experience. Also, my novel, Immortality, A Love Story, comes out February. And I know this is the most annoying thing in the world, but publishers just tell me as an author, pre-orders are like the most important thing that books need. It just determines their entire future. So if you read Anatomy or, you know, even if you haven't read Anatomy, which is the first book in the series, check out Immortality, A Love Story. That link is in the bio too. You can support the show on Patreon for episode scripts and monthly bonus episodes. And you can... Get merch also in the episode description. I think that's all the housekeeping. It's the holidays here. I'm recording this before Christmas and my kitchen is just filled with so many cookies. My brain has uh, fully leaked out of my ear. So I think that's everything. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you all are having a really wonderful new year. On the southern tip of England, the small county town of Lewis in East Sussex sits with its charming antique shop-lined streets and variety of local medieval architecture at a population of just under 18,000. I once took a train out of there. It was lovely. On an average day, the sleepy English hamlet welcomes the occasional tourist, those catching a train to London like me, or those hoping to catch a glimpse of any of Lewis's numerous historical sites, like Lewis Castle or, for the more royally inclined, the Anne of Cleves House, which, though she never technically lived in, was given to her in the settlement following her divorce from Henry VIII. But every year, come November 5th, Lewis finds its usually empty streets suddenly overflowing with a sense of restless anticipation as the population skyrockets from 18,000 
to upwards of 60,000 people, some dressed in period costumes, others simply carrying pockets full of fireworks, but each and every one of its visitors holding the singular intent of watching the town engulfed in flame by the night's end. Though I feel it is important to note the sudden influx of people are not attempting to set fire to the city itself, but rather watch as revelers race barrels of tar down the high street, then turn various parade floats into effigies, all before gathering to witness the main attraction, the attraction for which the night is named, the lighting of the legendary bonfire. In Great Britain, Bonfire Night, otherwise known as Guy Fawkes Night, is the annual commemoration of the discovery and eventual thwarting of the Gunpowder Plot, or the plan to blow up Parliament on November 5th, 1605. If you are a UK listener, you likely grew up hearing all about Guy Fawkes and his co-conspirators' failed plot to essentially overthrow the Protestant-led crown and establish a reigning British Catholic government in its stead. But on this side of the pond, knowledge pertaining to the real-life man behind the now-infamous Guy Fawkes mask typically begins and ends with the poem for which this episode is named. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot, which really only came into general public consciousness following the release of the graphic novel and subsequent anarchy-fueled film, V for Vendetta. But before Bonfire Night became an excuse to exhibit impressive arrays of pyrotechnics, the holiday was originally a motion passed through Parliament called the Observance of 5th November Act 1605, otherwise known as the Thanksgiving Act, which decreed, quote, ministers in every cathedral and parish church or other usual place for common prayer shall always upon the fifth day of November say morning prayer and give unto Almighty God thanks for this most happy deliverance, end quote which basically translates into a government-sanctioned church service that forces citizens to remember the failed attempt to overthrow the government. Hardly a call to anarchy as laid out in V for Vendetta. But V for Vendetta aside, the festivities that have been taking place in Lewis on November 5th every year don't exactly scream government-sanctioned day of prayer and remembrance either. Though burning an effigy of Guy Fawkes and throwing firecrackers at a man dressed as the Pope are, while arguably problematic in their own right, admittedly somewhat on brand for the occasion, having parade-goers dressed in costumes running the gambit from British suffragists to, frankly, racist portrayals of Native Americans and Zulu warriors make it clear that somewhere in the last 400 years, celebrations of the holiday seem to have lost the, pardon my pun, plot. Even outside some of the questionable traditions the current form of the holiday holds, between the pro-anarchy sentiments of V for Vendetta 
and the growing popularity of the Guy Fox mask's use in popular culture, particularly on the internet, it seems as if the words, remember, remember, the 5th of November, have almost begun to take on a meaning of their own, one that glorifies rebellion in general, rather than in a way attached to one specific, very Catholic, plot. Which begs the question, on a holiday which prides itself on lighting bonfires and setting off intricate fireworks displays to commemorate the day Parliament did not go up in flames, what exactly is it that we're meant to remember on the 5th of November? I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. In the over four centuries since the gunpowder plot was foiled, people are quick to remember Guy Fawkes and the 36 barrels of gunpowder he laid under the floors of Parliament, but they often forget the reasons why Fawkes and his co-conspirators even orchestrated their attack in the first place. So, in that vein, we need to take a step back from the failed plot in 1605 and instead look to the events that would eventually inspire their inception, the first of which took place in 1527, when King Henry VIII sought permission from the Pope to annul his marriage from his first wife so he could pursue the woman who would become his second wife, Anne Boleyn. The Pope's ultimate refusal to grant King Henry's annulment would go on to act as the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation in England, or King Henry VIII's decision to leave the Catholic Church and attempt to convert the whole of England to Protestantism and declare himself supreme head of the Church of England. Now, obviously, the Protestant Reformation and the subsequent decades and centuries of strife between British Catholics and Protestants is not something I can feasibly cover in the brief time we have today in this episode in which it's backstory. But for the sake of this episode, you should know that just over 30 years after that, when King Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Elizabeth, ascended to the throne in 1558, she was still very much actively dealing with the repercussions of her father's actions. Elizabeth was fresh off the heels of her Catholic half-sister, Mary Tudor's reign. Elizabeth sought to reinstate the Church of England that their father had established, and she had to take decisive action to denounce all of the crown's ties to the Roman Catholic Church. This took the form of what we now call the Elizabethan Settlement, which in broad terms essentially made Protestantism the official religion of England with no room for arguments. Of course, it wasn't that simple. Queen Elizabeth may have been the governor of the Church of England, not the head, as her father had been, because, you know, she was a woman. But even she couldn't just snap her fingers and will Catholicism out of Great Britain. For the largely uneducated lower classes in England, the loss of a religion that heavily relied on a working knowledge of Latin was not sorely missed, especially considering the substantial fines that were now enacted should they decide not to attend the mandatory Protestant church services every Sunday. 
And after over a decade of back and forth between Protestant versus Catholic rulers since the death of Henry VIII, following the rules laid out by the Church of England and not the Pope was a sure way to prove their loyalty to the Queen Elizabeth I. However, as you may have guessed, there were also those less than thrilled with the new, let's say, changes in management. In spite of the fines and possible jail time, even death that might have awaited those unwilling to convert to Protestantism, there still remained a subsection of mostly upper-class citizens who firmly held on to their ties to the Catholic Church. They were called recusants, and following Pope Pius V's papal bull excommunicating Queen Elizabeth from the Catholic Church in 1570, recusants were essentially given free reign to disregard any of her laws, or depending on one's interpretation of the Pope's words, even kill the, quote, pretended Queen of England. And though the bull gave recusants the green light to continue their now technically illegal religious practices in England, the bull's language also carried something ominous in it for Catholics. The threat was simple. Should they obey any laws presented by the pretended Queen of England, they too would face the same excommunication and therefore damnation that their queen had. And so, stuck between treason and a hard place, recusants were forced to stay out of the crown's line of fire enough to continue practicing Catholicism, but not so much as to be misconstrued as obeying the laws set forth by England's pretended queen. Just a casual, decades-long stroll along a razor-sharp knife's edge. No big deal. At least until March 1603, when the British crown could no longer afford to ignore the imminent change that had long threatened to crest over the horizon. After 44 years on the throne, a now 69-year-old Queen Elizabeth was succumbing to what would be her final bout of sickness before her reign would come to its inevitable end. Similar to her modern-day namesake, Queen Elizabeth II, after such a lengthy tenure as sovereign, Elizabeth I's death, while of course unavoidable, seemed almost more unthinkable than the idea of someone new on the throne. Of course, it didn't help that the line of succession was, once again, left in a state of limbo. The famed Virgin Queen obviously had no heirs for which to leave the throne, and even speculating as to who would succeed Elizabeth had led one prominent Puritan leader to be imprisoned in the Tower of London in 1593 until he died three years later for treason. When Elizabeth finally lay on her deathbed in 1603, it seemed as if she was no closer to naming her successor. Elizabeth's reticence to officially name her successor was no doubt partially informed by the inevitable repercussions the choice would have on the state of the Church of England after her death. 
which is why it came as somewhat of a shock that following her death, March 24, 1603, it was confirmed that King James VI of Scotland, son of the infamous Catholic martyr Mary, Queen of Scots, had officially been given the title King James I of England. For the recusants, news of King James's ascension to the English throne was a welcome beacon of hope after over 40 years of persecution at the hands of Protestant Queen Elizabeth. British Catholics believed James would show practicing Catholics more leniency than his predecessor, and in the beginning, it seemed like their hopes weren't unwarranted. The execution of Catholic priests had become something of a common practice, but a letter written by King James records him wishing for their exile as an alternative, with him stating, quote, I would be glad to have both their heads and their bodies separated from this whole island and transported beyond seas, unquote. And while the keeping of heads attached to bodies is no doubt a heartwarming sentiment, sentiments alone do little to stop the harsh realities of religious persecution. British Catholics had held such high hopes that their new king would be the one to reign in a new era of religious tolerance in England. But by February 1604, the actions of the new king were starting to outweigh their fondness for his beheaded Catholic martyr mother. Following his coronation in July 1603, King James sought to curry some goodwill with the British Catholics and declared his intent to pardon the fines against recusants for the whole of the following year. But after only a few short months in late February 1604, King James made a public declaration of his, quote, utter detestation of Catholicism, which was quickly followed up with the repeal of his order to pardon recusant fines. After almost half a century bearing the brunt of religious persecution in Great Britain, recusants did not take kindly to having the carrot of religious tolerance King James had so lackadaisically waved in front of their cage suddenly ripped away. Arguably worse than the strict ordinances enacted by Queen Elizabeth I, British Catholics felt betrayed by King James, a figurehead they had, after so long without, deemed worthy enough of putting hope into. In the wake of their new king's deception, most recusants simply went back to practicing in secret, accepting the loss for what it was. But on the night of May 20th, 1604, a group of men, decidedly not in this majority, sat at a small table at London's Duck and Drake Inn, finally desperate enough to take matters into their own hands. Now, contrary to popular belief, Guy Fawkes was not the sole perpetrator or even the leader of the gunpowder plot. He may have been sitting at that small table at the Duck and Drake that May evening, but like any good heist movie, 
The plot's conception was the product of a team of very specific individuals, each of whom had their own roles to play. Starting from the top, we have our ringleader, the charismatic radical Robert Catesby. Young, handsome, and equipped with a larger-than-recommended dose of theological fanaticism, Catesby had an immediately likable, magnetic personality. Even after his death, when his name was all but synonymous with treason, one man described him as his, quote, loving kinsman and the only son that must ripen our harvest. In essence, the deadly combination of Catesby's charm and his penchant for radical action made him exactly the type of person your parents probably would have used as an example to lecture you on the dangers of caving to peer pressure. As in, just because Robert Catesby decides to jump off a cliff, you're going to jump off after him? In this case, the cliff in question was the House of Parliament, and Catesby wasn't planning to jump off it, so much as he was plotting to set off enough gunpowder underneath its floors to blow every living lawmaker and politician inside, including the king himself, to kingdom come. And between Catesby's beguiling charisma and the sense of poetic justice in taking the lives of the lawmakers responsible for their suffering in the very place the laws against them were made, it didn't take much for other men to jump after him off the metaphorical cliff. Sitting next to the fearless leader was a man who would come to be known as his second in command, Catesby's cousin, Thomas Wintour. Wintour would first hear of Catesby's plans in February 1604, upon a visit to his cousin's house in Lambeth, where he, Wintour, would stumble into a meeting with yet another person who ended up at the Duck and Drake that May, a renowned swordsman named Jack Wright. But when Catesby first relayed the plan to his cousin, Wintour was not so quick to fawn over the idea of drastic action. Rightfully so, Wintour feared the negative repercussions that would no doubt plague English Catholics should the plot fail. If life for accusants was already a minefield of fines and warrants for arrest, what would their lives look like should the, quote, stroke at the root that Wintour characterized the gunpowder treason as fail? In spite of his initial misgivings, Catesby's tenacity would win out, and within weeks, Wintour would be on a ship to the continent in hopes of recruiting aid from the Spanish to further their Catholic agenda in England. And though Wintour's request for support from Spain would ultimately be shot down, the trip had the unintended consequence of introducing Catesby's second-in-command to none other than the fourth man at the Duck and Drake that evening, the gunpowder plot's inevitable poster boy, Guy Fox. Guy, or as he was better known back then, Guido Fox, was perhaps the least connected to the actual plot itself, but that hardly means his role was inconsequential. In the heist movie adaptation, Fox would be the quiet, unassuming man in the back who, 
when questioned about his involvement, would suddenly open his jacket to reveal pockets lined with grenades, machine guns, and enough ammo to take down a small army. In short, Guy Fox was the firepower, a role born out of years as a soldier fighting for Catholic interests abroad. Unsurprisingly, unlike Wintour, Fox had little to no qualms with the violent action set forth by Catesby. In fact, he, like the final man at the Duck and Drake that evening, was ready to take drastic action for the sake of Catholic life in Great Britain. The fifth and final seat at the inn was taken by a gentleman named Thomas Percy. Percy found his way to the table through his connections to Catesby and Wright, but it would be his connections to the Earl of Northumberland that would make him indispensable to the gunpowder conspirators. He, like Fox, was tired of waiting for the lives of British Catholics to improve on goodwill alone. Upon sitting down with the four other men that evening, Percy's first words to the group took the form of a simple question. Shall we always, gentlemen, talk and never do anything? It was with that question in mind that the original conspirators began to formulate the beginnings of what would eventually become the infamous gunpowder plot. Tucked away at their inconspicuous table in the Duck and Drake Inn, a small prayer book was passed through each of their hands as they swore oaths of secrecy in hushed tones, promising death and destruction for the sake of building a better world from its ashes. And as if they needed further proof of their good intentions, in the next room, a priest had just finished holding a secret Sunday Catholic Mass. So, with their secret plot for the greater good woven intricately between them, together the five men took the sacrament of Holy Communion, a sure sign that God himself was blessing the violent means by which they sought to achieve their righteous ends, especially as Catesby rationalized his plot to kill all the government leaders in Parliament, saying, quote, Perchance God hath designed that place for their punishment. After departing from the Duck and Drake in May 1604, each of the men had vague plans set in place to help the plot move forward, but it wouldn't be until Thomas Percy received a promotion from the Earl of Northumberland that any real progress would begin to be made. In June 1604, Percy was given the title Gentleman Pensioner, which essentially made him one of about 50 bodyguards for the Earl of Northumberland. More importantly, though, this new position gave Percy an excuse to find permanent lodging in London and thereby secure a base of operations for the gunpowder conspirators. As Catesby continued to recruit more recusants to their cause, Percy made the first steps toward planting boots on the ground by hiring Guy Fawkes as a servant 
under the alias John Johnson, which frankly sounds like a name made up under duress, then one carefully chosen to help conceal the identity of a man attempting to carry out a government coup, but I digress. With John Johnson under the employ of Thomas Percy, in March 1605, enough funds were finally pulled together for the group to lease out a storage space close to Percy's London home, a storage space which just so happened to lay directly beneath the Palace of Westminster. Now, the idea of a private citizen being able to gain access to a storage space so close to a government building, let alone the House of Parliament, might seem peculiar by today's standards. But in 1605, the Palace of Westminster was by no means the space we associate it with today. Back then, the building was an assortment of private apartments, taverns, and other businesses that all coexisted within walking distance of each other. So while the idea of renting out a storage space underneath Parliament might seem completely infeasible today, in 1605, it was likely costly, but not impossible. And so, with the cellar secured, the definitely not suspicious at all servant John Johnson then spent the following months sourcing gunpowder to fill the storage space. And by the end of July 1605, he had managed to gather 36 barrels of explosive ammunition and hidden it discreetly under piles of firewood, more than enough to, if not blow the roof off Parliament, then at least condemn everyone inside to a fiery grave. Initially, Parliament was set to go back in session in late July, but an outbreak of the plague set back the date to the 5th of November, at which point the gunpowder conspirators could do nothing more but sit and wait for their plan to finally come to fruition. Come October, the final pieces of the plot had fallen into place. The plan was simple. On November 5th, Guy Fawkes would light the fuse to set off the 36 barrels of gunpowder beneath Parliament, then flee to the continent to alert the Catholic leaders in Europe to the success of their coup. Meanwhile, Catesby and his followers would begin a rebellion in the Midlands with the purpose of capturing King James's daughter, Elizabeth, who they would then make the new Catholic leader of England. After over a year and a half of planning, the gunpowder plot was just days away from forever altering the lives of English Catholics across the country, altering history forever. That is, until the night of October 26th, when, unbeknownst to Catesby, a mysterious figure moved swiftly through London streets with a letter burning a hole in his pocket. A letter that would effectively cut their bomb's fuse before Fox would ever have a chance to strike his match.
That's the end of part one of our two-part series on the gunpowder plot. But stick around after a brief sponsor break to hear about how the legacy of Guy Fawkes still affects us today. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash noble. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Language, like history, has the unique ability to appear as if it's set in stone, even though it's perpetually in a state of flux. One prime example of this is the use of the word guy in the English language, as in, hey guys, or look at that guy over there, which, if you haven't guessed by now, originates from the gunpowder king himself, Guy Fawkes. Today, the term guy is more synonymous with man, or in the case of guys, a group of gender-neutral people at large. But when the term was coined, its connotations were originally far less innocuous. In its first form, the word guy appeared in reference to the guys that would be burnt in effigy each year for bonfire night on November the 5th children would sell handmade Guy Fox effigies fashioned out of old fabric and straw, then beg on the street, asking for pennies for the guy. The sale of guys on November 5th celebrations would eventually extend its definition from the singular effigy of Guy Fox to include all effigies, effectively labeling them as guys. This opened up the term to become less beholden to the man himself, 
subsequently leading to the words second iteration, which acted more as an insult than a physical object. By the 19th century, the word guy had mostly lost its connection to the former Guy Fox and was used to characterize a man who was undeservedly cocky or otherwise foolish in some way. Eventually, the term's negative connotations would fade, and the 20th century would give birth to the term guy as the general male descriptor we know today. Obviously, we witness the change of language every day just in the use of slang alone, but I think it's worth noting that the rules of grammar and language, by extension, are not as rigid as we're taught to believe. Time gives the illusion that certain words have simply always existed. But if this specific piece of Guy Fox's legacy proves anything, it's that language will always adapt to serve the world around it. Thanks for listening, guys. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is hosted by me, Dana Schwartz. Additional writing and researching done by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.